The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network. Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. One of my favorite moments of the week when I get to answer all your questions and get in as many as we can in the next hour. So any question that relates in any way, shape, size, or form to anything we ever discuss on the line of fire, anything I ever write, anything that relates to any expertise I have, phone lines are open. Friend and foe alike can call in 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Going to the phones momentarily, but I have to make a quick confession. I said a couple weeks ago on the air that I had looked at a book I had signed for someone and was kind of embarrassed at the signature. It almost looked like a caricature, like the side of a face or something. I thought, I gotta, I've got to try to recapture my old signature, which actually looked like Michael L. Then B. And, you know, couldn't really see it was Brown. But anyway, you could make out the words, and it just kind of morphed into a... And uh, anyway, I... It, it just didn't work. I, I, it is my signature. It's the way I signed. But all the silencing the Lamb's book that we've signed and sent out, uh, I couldn't quite recover that signature. Just to let you know, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Joseph in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi there, Dr. Michael Brown. Hey. So I got a question about Nehemiah chapter 10. Okay. Um, particularly verses 3 and 7. All right. It lists a number of um a number of people who had returned from exile. Mhm. And in that list it mentions Jeremiah in verse 3 mm-hmm. and in verse 7 Daniel. Um I know it's quite a lapse of time from the the books of Jeremiah and Daniel. I'm just wondering, especially since it references priests, I know that Jeremiah descends from the priest lineage, um, so I'm just wondering, is there any possibility that these are actually the biblical people that we know to be Daniel or Jeremiah, or are these just different people with the same name? Presumably different people with the same name because of the chronology, because of how old they would have to be. So if, if you look at—by the way, it's not just Jeremiah. The next verse is Pashkur. He appears in Jeremiah chapter 20, and then in verse 7, Baruch. So he is, of course, Jeremiah's scribe, and he gets a special word in, in Jeremiah 45. But no, since, since these men lived for many, many years before the exile, Daniel taken into uh, the return from exile, excuse me. So Daniel is taken into captivity as a young man, and then he's in captivity 70 years. Uh, so could he have potentially have returned... Yeah, uh, that's it's possible. He's certainly praying about. It. There's no record of that or hint of it, uh, and and he is now serving under the next government, right? So it would it would make it unlikely, but not impossible. Jeremiah, we don't know exactly how old he was. My assumption is a teenager. Uh, my understanding of of the Hebrew text in Jeremiah one, and now he he starts prophesying in six twenty seven, the thirteenth year of Josiah, six twenty seven B C. Uh, the return from exiles is almost 100 years later, so 
got to assume it's not that Jeremiah. Plus, we read that he's taken into Egypt at, at the end of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, so it's just interesting. But these, these were not uncommon names. I mean, if you look before it, you have Zedekiah, who was the last, last king. But we know he's, he's exiled. There's no, no account of him returning. So, um, yeah, just it's, it's an interesting observation. But they were not uncommon names. Hence, they, they occur in the list here. Understood, and 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 that and that makes sense because there there are other people in in scripture who have the same name. It's it just it's a part of the it's a part of biblical understanding that people yeah. sometimes name their children the same names as some people that have well, lived before. No, it's it's not just that. Um, how many Josephs are there today? How many Michael Browns are there? How many Michael L. Brown? Just certain names are common. You know, for example, the name Yeshua which we would translate in, into English as Jesus, but Yeshua uh, is a name for at least five different people in the Old Testament. The most prominent, Yehoshua ben Yehoshadak, the, the high priest, but a uh, common name, very common name in the first century. There were many, many, many Yeshua. How many Marys slash Miriams are there in the New Testament? So just common names. But uh, interesting observation. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Todd in Seagrove, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, I have a little bit of a background to my question. Um, in J. Vernon McGee's study in the book of Exodus, he was in the chapter 7 recalling the account of Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh and the account of, the, uh, of Aaron casting down his rod and the magicians casting down their rods and turning into serpents. Anyway, uh, Dr. McGee was saying, that the Hebrew word that is translated serpent there is tanin, and he was saying that there was another uh, uh, Hebrew word that was uh, translated serpent. So he was hypothesizing, uh, probably half serious, half joking, about that instead of it turning into a serpent, it could have been a crocodile. I hope you don't get too big of a laugh out of that, um, because of the crocodile being somewhat of a revered animal in Egypt at that time. So I just... I just want to get your, oh, yeah, your it's, input. No, it's, it's not a joke. It's not, it's not laughable. It's not the normal word for snake or serpent. Uh, you would have expected nachash. There could be other words of, of specific snakes, you know, an adder or cobra, but none of those words were used. And tanin is used in Genesis 1 for the great sea creatures, the tanin, the great sea creatures. Uh, and there is argument that it was a crocodile. You don't see it in many translations, but a case can be made for it, and then it would be a further mockery of Egyptian reverence for crocodiles and things like that in terms of deity status or special power. So, no, that it's, it's something seriously to look at. And I have to confess that I didn't even notice that until somewhere within the last five years probably that Josiah never focused on it. You know, when I read the Hebrew, I was thinking serpent, and it didn't dawn on me, wait, it doesn't say serpent. It doesn't say serpent. So there are reasons why it gets translated serpent, but a strong case can be made to reconsider that. So thanks for calling in, and no, no joke, nothing tongue-in-cheek at all. So appreciate you raising the question. Thank you. You are very welcome. 866-348-7884. We go to Brian in Leander, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, just just a little background. Um, in 2009, there was discovered a synagogue in Migdal or Magdala, 
um, in, there in Palestine, or Israel, and uh, it's believed to be a, one of the earliest Second Temple period synagogues found, and um, according to what I've read, it says the walls were decorated with elaborately designed colored frescoes, and, and on the floor uh, partially made of mosaics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I mention that is because, like a lot of Eastern Orthodox apologists and Catholics, they justify their use of iconic of icons on that, saying that they just carried that over from the Jews of the Second Temple period. Uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so there's a distinct difference. I, I would differ with Eastern Orthodox and Catholic on that. This was more artwork. This was simply beautifying the synagogue. You know, Solomon having cherubim on the walls and things like that of the temple. There was no worship. There was no bowing down to. There was no honoring, revering, anything like that. It was, it was simply a way of beautifying. And again, it would, it would certainly not be universal because some would have issues with it. But because of the very, very strong stand in Judaism against idolatry and against making images for any kind of worship, uh, and, and I've, uh, I believe the very synagogue you're speaking about, I've, I've seen, I've, I've been in, otherwise seen pictures of others, and it's simply artwork. Uh, now, now, you might say, okay, here's a church building, and it's just got paintings of Jesus or etc. on the walls, and it's a Protestant building. Okay, I'm, I'm not into that. that. That would not be my style for many reasons. But no one is bowing down in front of that image and praying to it as representing Jesus. So Eastern Orthodox Roman Catholic would say we're not venerating the physical being. That, that statue is just a representation of the God that we're worshiping or the one that we're praying to. But when you bow down in front of it, and pray words in front of it, there is veneration towards that, which I absolutely reject as, as wrong. And there is no connection between that and having a synagogue adorned in these various ways. That's simply beautiful. Just like the mosaic on the floor, you're, you're walking on that, right? That's just having nice tile on the floor, like a nice carpet in your home. So I don't believe there's an analogy that can be made. And there is no tradition, like I said, of looking at the image, praying towards it, addressing it, kneeling before it, which you would have in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox circles. Yes, sir. And, uh, and not to take up too much of your time, and thank you for your answer. But sure. A follow-up question. Yeah. A follow-up question. Um, uh, I, I saw a podcast uh, of a, a guy who was, uh, I think he said he was Reformed Jew, but he became a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And and one of one of his justifications of, of how like praying to saints and stuff was, uh, as part of like the uh, he said that his reformed Jewish belief was, and they take it from the Maccabees to pray for the deceased that they had prayers for that. Uh, do do a lot of Jews practice praying for those who passed on? Oh yeah, the more the more religious you are, but you're you are praying for them and you're not. Let me explain. You pray something that's called the Kaddish, the, the mourner's Kaddish. Kaddish means it's a, it's a holy prayer and utterance. And you pray that daily for 11 months after a loved one dies, a, a close relative dies. You're supposed to be in the synagogue and pray it daily. And when you read the prayer, it's just exalting God. It, it, it doesn't refer to a dead person. You're not praying to get them out of some kind of purgatory. You are honoring them. And there is some belief that in doing that will 
will help ease their way into the heavenly kingdom. So it's, it's related to purgatory, but it's different. The thought is that the most wicked person on the earth would be punished or go through a purging for 12 months and because no one's that bad. It's only 11 months, etc. But when you read the actual prayer, you're not praying for that person. You're simply exalting God, honoring God. But yes, uh, religious Jews, Reformed Jews don't practice a lot of this religiously. They're much more liberal. But the more religious you are, you would absolutely do this. Just look up Mourner's Kaddish, K-A-D-D-I-S-H, Mourner's Kaddish. This is what a religious Jew will pray daily after a, a loved one, close loved one, parent, sibling, child has passed away. They'll do it for 11 months. But read the prayer. It'll remind you more of the Lord's Prayer than anything else. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on the Friday broadcast of the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. You may be watching or listening on another day, but if you're listening live, give us a call with your question, 866-348-7884. Hey, Mark, 414, April 14th on your calendar. Just put a mark on it, April 14th, make a note, then read Esther 414. So mark April 14th on your calendar, read Esther 414, and we'll tell you exactly what that is, excuse me, all about in the days ahead. All right, we go over to Mark in Staunton, Massachusetts. Uh, Marco, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, I have a question about Clement of Alexandria and the mm -hmm. pronunciation of a divine name. Okay. Uh, there's somewhere in his uh, work called Stromata that he says um, that the Tetragrammaton was pronounced Yahweh. He spells it with the Greek letters. Um, just wanted to know what your thoughts are on that. Right. So this is one of the witnesses that we have. You have uh, other Semitic names from the ancient world, Amorite, other related languages to Hebrew. Then you have various writings. How does the Septuagint translate it at any point? Or do others, church fathers, reference it? Is there any hint we can get from the rabbinic writings? And then you put all the evidence together, and that's why the great majority of scholars would use the vocalization Yahweh to pronounce the divine name. So this is one of the witnesses. Now, you have other witnesses with, uh, with other, other pronunciations, and then you have the evidence of, of how names are handled within the Hebrew Bible. You have names that, that end with part or all of the divine name, or I should say a smaller part or a larger part of the divine name, like Eliyahu, so that's uh, my God is Yahu, which is apparently shortened from Yahweh, you have names that change at the beginning. How do you get a form like Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat? Where does that come from? So you put everything together. You look at how things get shortened in different settings. And this is one of the witnesses. And it would indicate that, that the pronunciation was preserved, uh, at least in some circles. In other circles, you were forbidden to pronounce it. It was considered too sacred but it seems in other circles it was passed down. So we can't be dogmatic 
but we can, we can be fairly confident that that was the right pronunciation. That being said, Marco, it doesn't bother me that there's still mystery associated with it and that it is God's name and he's revealed himself most fully through his son. So we relate in that way, right? And he exalts the name of Jesus, Yeshua, as the highest name in the universe. At the same time, there's some mystery that, that God is always in this place, just like his nature we understand, but it's beyond our understanding at the same time. So I don't mind the fact that we can't be utterly dogmatic and that sometimes we just write out the consonants Y-H-W-H to represent the name. But Clements, that is definitely a witness. Yep. Awesome. Could I ask a quick follow-up question? Sure thing. Yeah. So I've heard that um, the English rendering of Jehovah is a misunderstanding, like a mix of the consonants uh, of Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, and the addition of the vowels for Adonai. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Or Right. That, that would be what I have understood and the vast, vast, vast majority of Jewish and Christian scholars have understood for many, many years. Now, Nehemiah Gordon, who is a Karaite Jew, so he's not a rabbinic Jew, uh, he's spent a lot of time studying this, got a Ph.D. in, in Israel, in, focused on this, and he believes that is the right pronunciation and they preserve the right pronunciation. So he's in the minority, but he's literate. In other words, he's, he, he knows the language well, he knows the arguments well. To me, there's an overwhelming amount of data against it. But you have in the Hebrew Bible a tradition called Kari Kativ, which is one is read, the other is it is written. Uh, so when you're reading through the Hebrew Bible, sometimes you'll see it can be in different ways. You may have no vowels under uh, a particular word. Then you look in the margin, and you've got a different word there, and, and it's got vowels. It's saying, okay, read this instead. Here's what's written in the text, but don't say it. We don't want to say that word in the synagogue. It's, it's too suggestive or whatever. Read this instead that's in the margin. Or we have another reading here. And then sometimes they put the vowels from the other word in the margin in the, the text that's in the main text, and you think, huh, that doesn't make any sense. What are those doing there? And then you look in the margin. Ah, that's the word, and the vowels go with that word. When it came to the divine name, which occurs over 6,300 times in the Hebrew Bible— it was just understood. That's called the Cree Perpetuum. This is always read a particular way. So we're just going to put the vowels in. When you see it, you say Adonai. If you have it next to God, then you have the word, the vowels for Elohim there instead. So it, it, it changes. But yeah, this is, this is the right understanding that, that Christian scholars uh, in late Middle Ages, the Renaissance period, as they began to use the Hebrew Bible more, were not familiar with this tradition thought this is the vocalization, and came up with Yehovah, which in English is Jehovah. But aside from a tiny, tiny minority of scholars who argue against this, it's fully understood that was never the pronunciation. That was two words put together, and it was saying, when you see this, say Adonai, Lord. So thank you for the questions. Appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jay in Boise, Idaho. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, so um, my question is on determinism, um, not to, not just in the in the uh, in the air of honesty. I want to just let you know I am both a Calvinist and an apologist. So okay. I'm not exactly um, as open minded as another caller might be. Um, 
But so I am a compatibilist. And of course, that means that I do agree with free will and the, and the determinism, finding them to be compatible. And I've had a couple debates with Molinists and others, um, you know, across this this platform. And I, I've got a question that, if I may just be honest, has been consistently stumping. And, I, and I'd like to see if if it if it remains consistently stumping the higher up in the echelons you go. Okay. Um, which which would be you, the higher echelon. Um, hope that's not too much bragging on your name. <laughs> but so. It seems to me like if God is all-knowing and also is the uncaused first cause, that it isn't possible for anything other than determinism. In other words, not just for Christians, but I don't see how a Sikh or a Zoroastrian or anybody else who believes in a triomni creator God could get away from this. And my reason for saying that is because I want, I'm struggling to find out how a being could create another being even endowing that being with free will and know everything that it will freely choose to do, but then decide to go down that path anyway. But I don't see how that's not determinism. And my analogy that I often give is if I somehow managed to have a lion in a room and I had complete knowledge of what the lion would do in the room, and then I let it go, there is no law scholar, no lawyer, no judge on the entire planet that would blame the lion. They would all put this now, and I'm not saying that God is deriving the direct blame, but when we're talking about something like determinism versus the actual agent being right. the cause here, it just seems to me like it's it's just like a simple one plus two equals three, right? You let the lion go, you're the determining cause. So, in other words, even if we are completely free, how is God not the determining cause for allowing us to do things freely? Right. So, first thing is, uh, I go to Scripture, and Scripture plainly tells me in many, many verses, that God did not want certain things to happen, that it was not his desire, that he actually desired the opposite, but he did not force it to happen, that he grieves over certain things and makes it clear, this was not my intent, this is not what I wanted. So I have, to, I have to start there. I have to start not with philosophy and human logic, which is falls so short of the fullness of, of God's revelation and who he is, so I have to start with Scripture. When I start with Scripture, I, I cannot possibly be a determinist because it would make a mockery of verse after verse after verse. Look, even Jesus saying to Jerusalem, and even if you say, oh, he's speaking to the leaders, fine. How often I long to gather you to, together as a, as a chick gathers her, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. I long to do it. You are not willing. Or where it says uh, in Luke about the Pharisees, they reject it the will of God. You know, just on and on. God, God speaking about child sacrifice uh, in Israel and said, I, this, I never intended this, never commanded, never had it in mind. So you're doing things, he's saying, that are despicable to me. So when I start with Scripture, I can't possibly be a determinist. When I think of the wisdom and majesty of God, and as Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty three, so far beyond us possibly finding out and being able to understand that if God says we have freedom, I accept it. He inhabits eternity. He sees the, the, the end the way we see the beginning, except with more clarity. He, he, so he lives and dwells outside of time, but interacts with us within time. And I'll, I'll give you this analogy just to chew on, but I want to encourage you to go back to scripture and wrestle with all the verses where God plainly says, I didn't want this. I didn't intend this. I didn't, 
I didn't ordain this. This is not of me. I desired something else. You rejected it. But if, if, and this doesn't go back to your lion analogy, but if I record a sports event, right, and I don't get to see it until afterwards, when I watch it, it's all fixed. The result can't, can't be changed. But it recorded choices that people made. God has the ability, this is part of the mystery of it, to give us freedom of choice than to work within us and to work in that environment. But remember, it's not just a lion. There's also the real possibility that we do good. And throughout human history, God has drawn people to himself and good has come out of evil. And then ultimately, God's not just looking at this world, but what things develop into in the world to come. Hey, maybe we'll continue the chat another day, but chew on this with as an open a mind as you can, because nothing about this stumps me on the list. Maybe I'm missing the difficulty of it, but doesn't stump me. God bless you, man. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. 866-348-7884 is the number to call. Hey, one last thought about our previous caller and the question of determinism that, that by the nature of things, God being almighty and all-knowing, that the nature of things would be that everything is predetermined in a fixed way. So our freedom is a freedom, but with an inevitable outcome. That's just the way I'm defining it. The other problem with the analogy of saying, if you let loose a lion in the room, you know what that lion's going to do. Well, human beings are not lions. Human beings are created in the image of God. And yes, we cannot save ourselves, but Adam and Eve had the genuine potential of saying yes or no. And even if God knew in advance what they would do, which he did, of course, and the cross was predestined, because that's his answer, I'm going to redeem. I'm going to redeem. But Adam and Eve are not lions. And human beings today are, are not lions that are just inevitably going to bite, devour, destroy. Every day, every one of us makes choices. We each make choices. And God is working in the midst of that to carry out his ultimate plan, which, of course, goes by way of the cross. 866-34-TRUTH. Reminder to visit the site of our friend, Dr. Mark Stengler. Uh, more and more of you are taking advantage of the special offer there to get a 10% discount using the Dr. Brown code at vitaminmission.com. So they're really excellent health supplements. Uh, quite a few I've used over the years. So as you know, I, I eat uh, super, super healthily and in a very disciplined way by God's grace and to his glory. And for me, it's a stewardship matter and it's an obedience matter, but the benefits are absolutely wonderful. And then where there are lacks or things to add in, the health supplements are really terrific. So check them out. You get a discount. And remember, when you're doing that, you're not only helping yourself, you're blessing the line of fire and blessing others because it's helping us reach more people through the radio broadcast. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jason in upstate New York. Welcome to the line of hey, fire. How are you doing, good. Dr. Brown? Thanks doing for having good. me on. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I recently um, made friends with a man who is a fairly new pastor, and he's a pastor in a congregation around here that I'm not really familiar with their theology. Uh, this is something new to me, um, but I've had a lot of discussions with him recently uh, where he he is trying to 
it seems like he's making um, uh, like the, the the feasts and dietary laws a requirement instead of something that we're able to do uh, in order to bring us closer to our roots. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so some of the some of the common things that he's brought up would be you know that the the Gentiles have to become Israel um, that that was always what we were called to. So um, he uses the verses like you know the um, the Isra- or Israel was the natural branches on the tree or on the on the vine, and they were taken off so that we would be grafted in. And uh, he's basically saying like we're not really entitled to the promises of God unless we become Israel, because the promises come through Israel. Yes, yeah, so that's that's so, a very serious error that could lead to a lot right. of confusion and bondage. And it's flatly the opposite of the New Testament revelation, where saved mm-hmm. Gentiles and saved Jews become part of the ecclesia, Messiah's body, what's commonly referred to as the church. But Gentiles don't become Israel, and, and Israel doesn't become Gentile. Here, here's how Paul expresses it, forthrightly. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the congregations, all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call, meaning called to salvation, already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, which in the New Testament are the the basic fundamentals of the gospel. So that was his rule. Jews don't become Gentiles. Gentiles don't become Jews. In fact, in Romans 11, he directly addresses the Gentiles who are now grafted in to, to the olive tree and says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles so that you will provoke Israel to jealousy. So he distinguishes the Gentiles from Israel quite plainly. And the, the miracle of what happens in the New Covenant is that in the past, for a Gentile to be a full inheritor with Israel, that that Gentile had to join the people of Israel and convert, that to to be fully in receipt of the the blessings and the, the relationship with the God of Israel in the fullest way, men would have to be circumcised, men and women immersed in water, you'd have to keep pledge to keep the commandments, etc. You'd have to fully convert to Judaism, and now you were in. It's completely changed through the new covenant and through the blood of Messiah, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, slave nor free, etc. Those distinctions do not exist in our standing with God. There's no caste system. There's no class system. So through the Messiah, now an uncircumcised Gentile is an equal heir with a circumcised Jew, one together in the Messiah. So if he said, look, I find much beauty in the feasts, and God never abolished the biblical calendar, and we learn much from it and join together with Jews worldwide in celebrating, go for it. God bless you. Just make sure it's, it's all Yeshua-centered in what you do. If you say, you know, God must have given the dietary laws for a reason. We know we're not under them, and we know that the food that we eat does not bring us closer to God or defile us, but, you know, it must have been some reason for it, so we're going to do it. Okay, you have the liberty. You have the liberty to to not eat those things, fine. But the moment you make it an obligation, the moment you say we're called to do it, 
you check back another year or two or five, they'll be taking on even more and more. And now they'll be trying to look Jewish or they'll be wearing fringes or the men will be growing beards or they'll, they'll be getting more, you know, now which tribe are we identify with? You never know where it goes. And then some actually, after a period of years, turn away from the Lord entirely, just want to be Jews and, and turn away from Jesus. So the moment you make it obligatory or something that Gentiles must do, you have completely missed the, the message of the gospel, how Jew and Gentile become one in Messiah without either losing their identity. All right. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Yep. Okay. So you just kind of hit on it right there in the end. Uh, one of the other arguments that he would make is, you know, that it, it does not, it says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, and that's where he's trying to combine the two. Where What I'm hearing you say the opposite. Exactly. We're all one. Right. There's neither male nor female. So right. do men start becoming women or women start becoming... No, men are men, women are women. But in Messiah, we're one and we're equal. The moment you get away from the distinction, now you no longer have male, female coming together in their uniqueness to make something new together. So it's the Jew as a Jew and the Gentile as a Gentile becoming one in the Messiah that brings this beautiful, powerful unity. Hey, listen, direct them. The, the podcast goes out. The videos are up on YouTube after the show. I direct him to this. I've, I've seen this for decades, and I've never seen it end well. It only deepens confusion. The witness of Jesus goes down. The worship of the Son of God decreases. Evangelism goes down. It's just inevitable that, that things will stray from where they're supposed to be. And Acts 15 plainly says the opposite. People say, no, no, no. They said you'll be in the synagogues. The Gentile believers, they'll be in the synagogues, and they've heard these things. In other words, the basic things we're saying, they've heard this before. They'll get it easily. It's not saying take on the rest. Nowhere does the New Testament ever say take on the rest. Ever, ever, ever. Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Eugene in Los Angeles. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Eric Brown. Thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, quick question in regards to in, in Timothy. Yep. So Timothy, First uh, Timothy. Okay. Chapter 1, in verse 4, Paul makes reference to myths and endless genealogies. Mm-hmm. And he says, which give rise to mere speculation. So my question is, do we have any more information about these myths and genealogies? Because I was reading some commentaries, and they go from all being Jewish to being um, Gnostic teachings. But then some commentary says this kind of Gnostic teaching, as they refer, doesn't really take effect till you know, much later. Right. So some go back to Philo and whatnot, so I wanted to... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it is, it is debatable. Yeah, it is debatable. In, in other words, that's why the commentaries are going to give you different views, because we have what Paul wrote here, and then we don't have his commentary or explanation, so everything comes after. It, it's certainly true that when First Timothy is being written, that you may have some early seeds of Gnosticism, but nothing that could be called full-blown Gnosticism's Gnosticism, nor did uh, not, uh, Gnostics as a group exist. So it could just be some, some emphasis that ultimately became Gnosticism. So you have to be very careful the way you say it, otherwise it's anachronistic, it's, it's out of time. So you, you were careful to explain it in that way. Um, we know that genealogies are important in the Gospels to establish the credentials, the background of Jesus the Messiah. And we know that they're throughout the Bible. So that can't be the issue. Uh, was the issue about people trying to prove their own genealogies? 
was the was the issue a matter of uh, debating minutia about the genealogy of Jesus? Was it trying to prove some spiritual pedigree? We don't know for sure. Uh, if you've read commentaries that give the different options, those tend to be the main options there. And I don't know that I've heard something that I thought, okay, this is definitely it. It's the spirit of it which I grasp, in order to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Was that, was that part of Jewish tradition that they were battling, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith? Was it Jewish genealogies trying to fill in blanks and connect people to different ones and who this one really was, etc.? It's, it's debatable. So I, I can't, I, I've never written a commentary on a New Testament book and then gone through this in sufficient depth to say, I'm sure about this. So you got to keep digging and, and see what seems to make the most sense. Okay. So what, uh, <clears throat> what would you say, uh, to the best of your uh, ability, best of your knowledge, is in reference to genealogies? Like you said, there's, we have good, you know, genealogies are good, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But right. So, so in my them? in my mind, the, the 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 things that would most prominently present themselves to me would either be one arguments about spiritual pedigree in one's own life based in genealogy, or perhaps more likely, various Jewish traditions that argued that so and so went back to so and so and tried to fill in the blanks. And Paul's saying, "It's why that's of no value. That's of no meaning." Um, I may say one other thing on the other side of the break, so just stick around. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. Hey, if you're anywhere near Jacksonville, Florida, New Life Church starting tonight and then through Sunday, a special Origins Conference, Jewish Roots, all kinds of fascinating scriptural discussion. A colleagues of mine will be ministering. I'm scheduled to speak morning and evening tomorrow. So just check my itinerary, askdrbrown.org. So last comment, Eugene. I was just curious to see what Professor Craig Keener said in his IVP Bible background commentary. Uh, same thing that I just said, that the idea of, of post-biblical Jewish tradition, filling in genealogies and debating things like that could be at the center of it. And, of course, you mentioned Philo and the myths and genealogies referenced there. But, yeah, we don't know beyond that. My suspicion seems to be similar to his as well. Appreciate the call. All right, let's go over to Mike in Londonbury, New Hampshire. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how's it going? Going well, thank you. Hey, so um, I, don't, I don't know how much... Um like splitting hairs this question would be but my question is um pertaining to to jesus so if one accepts him as the messiah we know that he's he's not just a man he's far above a human being um how concrete does one have to be on whether he's the son of god or god the son you, you know what i mean mm -hmm. ultimately to understand god rightly we need to understand that 
that the Son of God is eternal and divine, hence God the Son. I don't believe that someone has to fully get that the moment they're born again. Plenty of Jews come to faith, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, believe that God has appointed him as Lord, believe he died for their sins and rose from the dead, and it's only over a period of time that they begin to understand God's complex unity. It's only over a period of time that they begin to realize that, that this eternal Son came into the world in the person of Jesus. So I would say if someone blatantly rejects that, in other words, they've studied it, they've studied it, and they say, no, the Son is a created being, then I say they are believing falsely about him and would, would be deeply concerned about the reality of their relationship with God or the foundation on which they stand, and many others would say plainly they're obviously not saved. But I certainly don't believe that, that when Peter preached in Acts 2 and 3,000 Jews came to faith that they all got it right then. Oh, we understand. Because remember Peter's last word, Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Messiah. So they're hearing God has made this one Lord, so the, the master, the one you bow down to, and Messiah, but God is still God. I would imagine it's over a period of time that further insight, study of Scripture, revelation came uh, to open that up for them. So you have cults like Jehovah's Witnesses that are cults, one reason being that they believe that the Son of God is a created being and therefore not eternal and not to be worshipped as God, whereas the New Testament very plainly refers to Jesus as God and, and makes clear that we are to worship him, but ultimately everything points to one God and, and every knee bowing down to him. So uh, it, it's really, it's, it's not splitting hairs. There is a difference. The question is, is, if he is a created being, then he cannot be worshipped as God, he cannot be called God, he cannot be prayed to as God, and yet all of those things are done in the New Testament. To say he's a created being would be something that we regard as heretical. Awesome. Makes sense. Um, I have also an unrelated question. I don't know if, if you have time for it or not. But... Go for it real quick. Yeah. Okay. Um, so coming from back in your early days when you um, obviously were converting over from uh, Judaism and stuff like that, and people that are just getting into reading Scripture and fairly early in the walk, did you ever have um, trouble being like a little bit skeptical of Paul and his writing? No, I, nothing, nothing bothered me about that at all. In other words, when I, got, when I got saved, I got radically saved, and the Bible was the Bible. That's okay. The people in this church are telling the truth. Uh, Jesus saved my life, saved my soul, transformed me, and um, this is the Bible. So what it says is true. And I may have had a question about what it meant or read something and be like, wow, I didn't know that. I remember reading through the Gospels, and it was like a, a mystery novel to me. It's like, what's going to happen next? It's like, what, what, what? Jesus healed? There's a blind, Jesus healed a blind person? Well, and, and then a couple of chapters later, he, he raised someone from the dead. I had no idea. It's like, whoa, I didn't know this. I knew Jesus rose from the dead. I didn't know about these other things because it was brand new. But it was written, and it was true. As the years went on, a lot of what I believe was challenged, you know, day and night for decades been challenged. But, no, especially with Paul, never, never struggled there. Hey, thank you. Thank you for asking. All right, um, let's go to Michelle in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Isn't it something? Are you our first woman calling today at the end of the show? Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks for taking my call. I have two quick 
well, maybe not quick questions. One is, do you suppose Christians would be more effective evangelists towards Jewish people if we were better able to articulate the mystery of the red heifer? And I'm asking because I witnessed a Hasidic Jew become a Christian. Um, I witnessed to him for three years with no success, and then when I tried to explain the red heifer connection to Jesus, then the lights just went on. So I'm just curious your thoughts on the value of us learning that yes. more and being able to share it better. Yeah, so Michelle, if the Lord used that to bring a Hasidic Jew, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, into knowledge of the Messiah, that's wonderful. Again, I wouldn't want to think of him as going from Jew to Christian, but, but a Jew embracing Yeshua as the Messiah. But I've been sharing the gospel for 50 years with my people, and never once has that mystery of the red heifer come up as a, a point in evangelism or theological discussion. And I've been in the thick of it and with tons of, with, with leading Orthodox rabbis and lots and lots and lots of interaction with wide ranges of Jews. So, no, I, I would not look to it if the Lord used that, worked in a particular way, wonderful. But I, I do not see it as a, a primary witnessing tool. I see other things in terms of sacrificial offerings or the analogy with the binding of Isaac and how Jewish tradition sees that in Genesis 22, etc. Uh, I would see those as much more powerful the death of the high priest and releasing the manslayers, the accidental homicide, those things, the whole analogy of the sacrificial system, I find those to be much more powerful arguments. And then, of course, in the New Testament, the reference to the Messiah as the Lamb of God. So the Lord used that wonderful, but I would dare say that there was three years of sharing the gospel first, planting seeds, praying, which was really the key. And this may have just been some final thing that, that the Lord used. So in my judgment, thank God he used that, but no, I would not say this is a, a major thing we should learn for sharing the gospel with Jewish people. Thanks for asking for my opinion. Did, did we have any women before Michelle call in? I just don't remember if we did. All right, let's see if I can get to another call or two. Uh, Marcus in Orange County, California. Time is short, so please dive right in. Okay, sure. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Hi, hey, Dr. Brown. So my question is, you know, the Bible says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, not that there's two faiths or three faiths. And the whole purpose of Israel was to go out and convert the nation, to publish the gospel, and to convert unbelievers to believers. Unbelievers in the Bible are called Gentiles, or heathen, heathens, pagans, Gentiles. So my question for you is, do you believe Jesus when he said to uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again? not of corruptible seed by the incorruptible word of God that liveth and abideth forever? And if you don't believe, you're not really a Jew. Uh, yeah, so uh, almost everything, well, a lot of what you said there was false. So, but thanks for getting it out so quickly, with time being short. Thank you. Number one, Israel's mission was not to convert the nations, but to, to live as a priestly nation, keeping the statutes that God gave to them, and not to the rest of the world, but to declare the knowledge of God, to exalt God in the nations so that the people as the nations could worship God. They were not supposed to become Israel. So look, for example, in Isaiah 19, the end of that chapter, that Assyria and Egypt at the end of the age will worship God together with Israel. They don't become Israel. They do not become Israel. Now, pagan, Gentile can be synonymous, but other times, Gentile, Goy, just means someone of the nations. Abram is told he's going to be a great Goy, a great nation in Genesis 12. 
So read Romans 11. Paul writes to Gentile believers, 11, 11 to 16. He writes to Gentile believers and says, I'm writing to you Gentiles because I want you to provoke my people Israel to believe. So Gentiles do not become Israel. I mean, the word is explicitly clear on that in the New Testament. Now, you could say, well, I identify as a spiritual Jew. Fine, but, but if you read in Romans, get to the end of the second chapter, keep reading into the third chapter, a Jew is a Jew, a physically circumcised person, and tracing back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does Paul say? In the Messiah, he doesn't say a Jew becomes a Gentile, a Gentile becomes a Jew, or everyone becomes Israel. He says, no, no. In the Messiah, Jew and Gentile become one in him. How? Through that new birth that you mentioned. So I'm a saved Jew. You're a saved Gentile, whatever your background is, if you're Jewish also. We are saved through the blood of Messiah. We become one. But just like when a man gets saved, he doesn't become a woman. When a woman gets saved, she doesn't become a man. But they are now equals in the Messiah. As I said to a previous caller, no caste system, no class system. And Paul warns against it. He said, if you're saved, uncircumcised, don't become circumcised because circumcision is not the issue. And if becoming a Jew is the issue, he would say, every male has to be circumcised. No, he says the opposite. And this is one of the modern heresies today that Jews are not really Jews, but that Christians are the true Jews. False, false, false. Thank you for the call. Perhaps we'll talk again in the future. God bless your friends. And if you're in the Jacksonville area, hopefully I'll see you this weekend. Another program powered by The Truth Network.